This is the Comp Effect Podcast. When you focus on workers' compensation, you'll have a safer work environment, more productive staff, lower expenses, and you'll crush your competition. We're sharing real-world stories, actionable tips, business-friendly advice, and information to help your business. I'm your host, Todd Tams. Enjoy the show. Please welcome today's guest on the Comp Effect podcast, Jennifer Smith. Jennifer Smith is co-owner of Zoop and Zoop Law Firm, and her primary practice areas are personal injury and, you guessed it, workers' compensation. She's been practicing for almost 20 years and serves on numerous professional associations, including the Iowa Workers' Compensation Attorneys Board and the Iowa Workers' Compensation Advisory Committee. She's also past president of the local Bar Association. She's a wealth of knowledge and information, and we're thrilled to have her on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. Well, thanks for having me, Todd. I really appreciate the opportunity. Good way to start the new year. It's a great way to start a new year and happy new year to you and uh, everybody in your family. So here's one thing that I want to know. I've known you for a number of years and you've always been receptive to answering my messages on Facebook Messenger and uh, maybe answering questions about workers' compensation. But the one thing I don't know is you have a twin sister. I don't know who's first. Yeah, I came first, 19 minutes. (laughs) I, we debate over whether or not that was the best or the worst 19 minutes of our mom's life. So yeah, her name is Jessica. She practices here with me. She doesn't practice workers' compensation. Uh, she does do a little bit of personal injury work with me. We'll team up sometimes on cases that warrant it. But uh, you also have to just find out on your own who's the good twin and who's the bad twin. Sorry. I haven't heard anything bad about you. <laughs> it's a lie. There you go. It's falsehoods, right? News. So the Comp Effect podcast wants to talk to business owners about things that they can do in their business to create a, not only a, a positive outcome for workers' compensation, but just if they focus on the right things, they'll grow and they'll thrive and they won't get sued. Um, they'll have a full staff of employees. Everybody's happy. And that business will probably do better than their competition because of the way that the, they've built the culture and the processes they put into their business. You come in when there are situations when things don't go right. And no matter where I go, I, when I travel, it seems as though people know the Zoop and Zoop name and they know what an aggressive attorney you are and how hard you work for the people that you defend. And that's a huge compliment because you're well-known and you're well-respected in whether it's an insurance company or the attorneys that I talk to. And so I'd really like just to dig in today and have you share some information, how you got into the industry, what made you go into the workers' compensation area. And let's just have a little chat and see if there's something that business owners can, uh, business owners, risk managers, HR professionals can pick up and learn from you today. Sure. Uh, well, that's a, that's a lot to start with. So I'll just say thanks for the compliment, Todd. I appreciate that. Um, I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression that I'm some mean, um, aggressive bully type of lawyer. I'd like to think of myself as an asset to both the claimant and the employer. And I think, uh, that's true in large part for everybody that I know that does claimants work. 
um, that's a good lawyer that's really working for the benefit of the client, I think has that same attitude. We're here to help the parties resolve the case as quickly as we can and for a fair result. Um, and so that's just how I approach it. You know, I grew up in a working class family. My mom stayed home and raised the kids. Our dad worked worked for a factory um, in management, but, you know, factory nonetheless. So I feel like I have a real good um you know, good upbringing and a good perspective on what it really means to um, be tied to your job. And when that's taken away from somebody or the job is in jeopardy, it really impacts upon the family. And so I'm just one of those people, I guess, that's uh, got a soft spot for people that are maybe um, down on their luck and going through some um, hard times in their life and having a workers' compensation in injury um, really is one of those times that can be devastating to somebody. So my, I consider my job um, peacemaker, deal maker, broker, um, and advisor. And so, you know, how I got into this profession really was, um, you know, I didn't know anything about work comp in law school. I went to law school in South Dakota. We didn't even have a work comp class there. I understand that's different in Iowa. They do. Uh, but at my old law firm, my boss had a client who was hurt at work. So I agreed to help and I joined forces with uh, another colleague of mine, Safin Parrish Sams, who practices in West Des Moines. And I think at that time, she was probably about a decade in her practice and we're real respected. So I teamed up with her and, and probably, I suppose, another dozen cases after that, I teamed up with other lawyers that already knew things. And so that's how I kind of got good at what I do. Um, I do think I am pretty good at what I do. You know, it's hard to do this all day, every day and not get good. Um, so, so yeah, that's really the perspective I bring to it. And there's a lot of things that I've seen over the course of years that, that range from minor violations of the law to egregious violations. And so, yeah, I'd love to give some tips to employers to just kind of help, help make um, a situation that could be really bad, not as bad. Cause I think that's better for workers and employers. So you, can I just start giving you like my number one tip of what drives people to me? Oh my gosh, let's do it. Number one tip, Jennifer, what drives people to you? Okay, so I thought, I didn't think that this would just be my clients and how I get clients. So I, I asked my uh, claimant's attorney friends, hey, you guys, what, what's the number one driver of people that comes to you in your business? And almost universally, we all agreed that it's employers or insurance companies messing with somebody's medical care. So in Iowa, the employer which is usually then controlled by the insurance company has the right to choose an employee's medical care. And that's fine. You know, I don't necessarily agree that that's the best way to get somebody to uh, fastest healing possible, but that's the law. So it is what it is. Um, the problem is that when the employer and the insurance company choose the doctor, they're also supposed to listen to the doctor and that's the trade-off in the law. Well, uh, you know, as you can imagine, what I see in my practice and how people come to me and my friends is that somebody's messing with the medical care. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you send somebody to a doctor and the doctor recommends an EMG or the doctor recommends an MRI or physical therapy, 
don't switch doctors or try to switch doctors. Don't take three weeks to set up an MRI when we all know it takes a 15 minute phone call. You know, don't deny the EMG when the person could just drive 30 miles down the road and get one within three days. You should really be having notes in your file, documenting steps that you're taking to actually get this person timely care. Because guess what? When they don't get that medical care, they've got friends. They've got family member, they may have a union, they've got somebody that's in their ear telling them, go get a lawyer. If they're not listening to you, go get a lawyer, go get a lawyer. And so, so the way you avoid them getting to a lawyer sooner is just take care of their medical care the right way. So we see that so much. And, you know, the thing about work comp is, you know, if somebody's not getting a proper medical care, and they come to me for help, I have a pretty quick, easy remedy in Iowa law. I file a petition for alternate medical care with the agency. It's free to do. The only cost to me is my time and certified mail fees. Um, and the agency will set a hearing on my motion to request that medical care within 10 days. And guess what? I'd probably say 99.99% of the time, if the authorized treating physician has ordered something and the employer's not doing it, and I've got a petition on file, I'm going to win. And so, you know, there's no point in you making the, the client come to me and then I file a case and then you probably at that point have to get your defense lawyer involved because now there's litigation and guess what? Now your defense lawyer is going to get paid. So there goes your claim dollars. Um, so the best way you can really avoid problems from the outset is just following the appropriate recommendations from the doctor. So let's dig into that a little bit. One of the you know, from any, on any worker's compensation claim, there always is cost containment and there is a common, uh, maybe mindset that the only people that really win in a worker's compensation claim is the medical industry because whatever test they order, uh, gets, they get paid for. And so we see, uh, just even as a, as an insurance agent, sometimes maybe there is an advocate for self-care like let's wait three or four days, see if it gets better before we go out and we pay three, four, five, six thousand dollars for an MRI or whatever that costs. Um, what do you see that as a? I mean, what are you seeing in the industry when when you say the doctor said this, and the insurance company said hold off a little bit? Is that when people come run to you, or how how would you advise a business owner or an insurance company in a situation like that where? maybe we just don't want to run up all these tests that maybe aren't needed at this particular point in time. Yeah. Well, I think unless the company itself has in-house medical providers who are trained to look at the medical evidence and I'm talking about symptoms and does the employee do a job that would be kind of the type that would commonly cause those symptoms, unless the employer has somebody in-house who would be trained to make those kind of determinations, I don't feel that there's really any place for them to be second guessing the doctors. I think that's just clear under the case law in Iowa. Um, at the same time, I can appreciate that an insurance adjuster or an employer may be suspicious of a doctor who sends somebody for an MRI on the first visit, particularly if there wasn't not like an acute injury. Um, because I think I, I, to me in my practice, what I see more often is somebody who has developed an injury over the course of time. Um, they go to the doctor with, you know, swelling, inflammation, perhaps pain with range of motion, those types of symptoms. 
almost always the doctor is first going to order about a physical therapy, whether it's six visits, 12 visits. Um, and only then do I usually see the doctors ordering an MRI. Um, I think the real only exception I really see is if the injury was traumatic. So like a fall or something like that, where it would be a good idea to do an MRI quickly to rule out like some really serious acute pathology. But I just really don't see that. Um, at least in our area, I don't think that that's really a problem I hear of statewide, but I do agree that the medical costs are out of control. Um, that's across the board. I think the states that have um, some degree of price control built into their statutory scheme is uh, perhaps something that we should be looking at in Iowa, at least studying the issue because, you know, I have, I don't want to name names, but there's, you know, some providers fairly local to this area where somebody will go and get an MRI and they'll charge nearly $3,000. Whereas if somebody goes to Omaha, they can pay 750 cash. So I, the disparity I think is shocking. And I think that unfortunately that is a large driver in terms of where the insurance companies are choosing to send patients. So instead of just, you know, feeling like you can send somebody almost anywhere and get good care for a fair price, they got to shop around for the cheap stuff. Well, guess what? Sometimes the cheap stuff isn't always going to produce a good result. So I think that really is something that the legislature, not only in Iowa, but elsewhere really should be looking into. And the problem I think we face is that the doctors don't like that. They don't even want to talk about that. Uh, but I think as our country probably moves more toward socialized medicine types of policies and practices, that that might be something to consider because I believe in Iowa, I, I don't have the statistics offhand, but I want to say like nine out of every 10 claims dollars is spent on medical care. Now you might say that's a good thing because, hey, that must mean the person's getting a lot of care. But if the reality is that the care is just overpriced to begin with, it's really something we ought to take a look at. I'd like to see more of the claims dollars, you know, being put into the claimant's pockets if possible. I know, I know on the health insurance side, they say 80 to 85 cents out of every dollar goes to medical claims. And then I know the, the insurance companies will always say that, you know, they they don't get the same deal that a medical uh, insurance company gets when it comes to the work comp fee schedule. True. And True. So their costs are higher. And ultimately the sad thing here is business owners are paying the cost of that. It's not right. the employees. It's not the doctors. It's not the insurance companies. I mean, insurance is just the mechanism to fund the payment. Right. Yeah. What I sometimes see going on um, in cases, I would say not so much with the larger, more sophisticated work comp employers, but like the smaller employers that have maybe, you know, five or six employees where they're really not experienced with work comp. What we'll see them doing is sending the employee to the doctor for what's clearly a work-related injury and having the employee submit the bills through their their own health insurance, um, whether that's Medicaid or whether that's Blue Cross Blue Shield through, through the market or some, you know, United Healthcare, whatever the coverage might be. And, you know, I think they do get the benefit of that because we'll end up closing the case later on and only owing that little bit of deficit still owed after the, the private plan is paid. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a problem, Todd. I think I see that a lot. And uh, it's tough to deal with that on, on the size because I can understand the frustration that employers and insurance companies are having. You know, it's just we need some kind of fair upfront price scheduling. I think that would benefit everybody universally. Agreed. Let's go back here. So the small business, maybe the small business that doesn't want to have a workers' compensation claim, it is common for 
business owners to be so afraid of filing a workers' compensation claim or getting somebody into the system that they will either A, pay for that care themselves. They'll, hey, we'll take care of the bill, just send it to my company, or B, go ahead and run that through health insurance and we'll reimburse your deductible. Yeah. And while the reality is probably most of the time that may be okay. There's a large, large portion of claims that go off the rails real fast that I'm sure that you just smile. I can see you smiling right there because those type of things are <laughs> what keep you busy week in and week out. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the, when an employer does that, what they're really doing wrong? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think if they actually probably read the fine details in their policy, the public policy probably requires them to give notice to the insurance company of the fact of an injury right away. And so if they do that, if they send the worker on their own to get medical care and just kind of ignore their obligation to report the injury to the insurance company, there's a risk to the employer that the insurance company comes back and says, we're not covering this because you didn't notify us of the injury. And by the way, when you did that, you screwed all this stuff up and we're not going to be held responsible for that. So um, I think that's probably the number one reason why not to do that. And the second reason is because most employers don't know what they're doing. You know, it's a complex system at least in Iowa, um, you know, Nebraska, South Dakota, they're all very complex systems. Most lawyers don't even know the system unless they're trained in it. So the odds that, you know, the regular employer that specializes in, you know, pharmacy or whatever the case might be, that they're going to know strategically how to handle the claim properly is just, it's a disaster waiting to happen. So, you know, the benefit from me as a claimant's lawyer is when something like that happens, an employer has sent off the claimant on his or her own to go get medical care. And let's just say the doctor takes the person out of work for three or four weeks. Well, then is the employer going to also pay those wages for those three or four weeks? Probably not, because they probably don't realize that they need to do that because they're not sophisticated enough. And then guess what? Here's this claimant all mad because they're not getting any money. And guess who, who do they come to? Me. Well, guess what happens if a worker has been taken out of work for a work-related injury and no benefits have been paid? Two things. I can get a penalty benefit on all those payments that were not paid on time. That's 50% of each week of entitlement that I can claim as a penalty for being naughty. Um, and in addition, you risk bad faith. So, mm, Highly advise against it. That's what you pay your insurance for. Just turn in the claim. It's the insurance company's job to minimize the value of the claim as much as they can. I mean, that's not really the job, but the, the reality is that's what they're trying to do. Let them do their job. Um, you know, also I would suggest to businesses, get somebody in your town that you trust to just give you general business advice. Um, I would say your average lawyer in town is probably not qualified to give you really good work comp advice, but at least they'll probably give you some helpful ideas and probably tell you, just turn it into your insurance company. You know, you might save a, what do they say? Penny wise, pound foolish. That's what you're doing. We see claims where uh, we'll have, we'll have people that say, I want to be paid cash under the table, you know, or, you know, oh, that, that guy, I pay cash. I don't need a worker's compensation policy. And I say, that's always fine until he gets hurt. And the wife's upset because the wife didn't make that deal or the spouse didn't make that deal. Right. Yeah. And when there's no money coming in and there's no paycheck, that's when all hell breaks loose. Yeah. I've done a couple of those claims. You know, I've, I've multiple times I've sued employers, which puts their personal and business assets at stake. Cause what happens a lot of times is it's largely farmers for whatever reason. Um, 
or you know, employment related to farming and they'll be hiring people that are even like undocumented and think, well, I'm paying them cash. They're not documented. So, you know, therefore I'm just not gonna even report them as an employee and pay and pay work comp premiums on their wages. The problem with that is they still have the, the worker still has a claim in Iowa and I will file it. Um, I will go after the penalty because I feel really bad that you are mistreating and taking advantage of this worker. Um, and if you are really foolish and don't have your business tied up in an LLC or a PC, guess what? I'm going to take your business assets too, to satisfy my judgment. So you don't want to be writing me a 70, 80, $90,000 personal check out of your business account. Much better that that comes from your insurance company. So let's dig into that a little bit. Cause I think what you just said there is really, maybe not a lot of people get, um, in the state that we're in, and I believe probably most states, when a business purchases workers' compensation insurance, workers' comp ends up being, for most, most things, the sole remedy for employers. That's the protection for the business because they transfer that risk for any claims to the insurance company outside of maybe gross malpractice on their part. Fair enough? Right. But when a business chooses to not purchase workers' compensation insurance and maybe say everybody's a as I use my quotation marks in the air, subcontractor or 1099 employee, or I pay them cash, they don't get those same protections anymore. They are now exposing everything they have to that injured worker and to the lawsuit that you're going to file for that injured worker because right. they didn't buy a simple policy. Yeah, that's right. Um, first of all, the question of whether or not a worker is a independent or subcontractor or an employee is a question of fact. 99% um, of the time, if you're paying somebody weekly wages or wages based on hours or wages based on output, you know, they don't provide their own tools. They don't uh, set their own hours, their own schedule, they're subject to termination. The court's going to look at all of those facts. And so if you have somebody, no matter how you're paying them, that fits those kind of um, facts, the court is going to find that they're an employee. 99% of the time. So if they are an employee and you don't have work comp insurance, I, as a claimant's lawyer, have the option to sue you in workers' compensation under Chapter 85 and under Iowa law. So I would file my petition before the agency, or I can sue you in district court and I can get whatever remedies would be available in district court. And the beauty of that from the claimant's perspective is guess what that means? I can get money for things like pain and suffering. Um, so that means that I don't really have like the cap on the amount of money that I can recover against you that I would have in the workers' compensation context. So now does every claimant's lawyer who has a client whose employer does not have coverage elect to file in district court? No. But if you have good assets, we're going to. Why not? But if you don't really have a lot of assets or maybe it's not that big of an injury, Odds are the claimant's lawyer is probably going to file it in the work comp context because it's just a whole lot easier to prosecute, less time consuming, less rules, more, more comes into evidence. It's, it's much, much more informal process. So terrible idea to try to skirt your obligations when it comes to taking care of your employees. Do the courts, let's say I don't buy it. Let's say a business hasn't bought work comp and they've got some decent assets paying people. I mean, let's just say they're doing everything wrong. They're paying people under the table, um, you know, 1099, whatever it is. When that goes to court and you're sitting there in the courtroom with the, the defendant and the, all the parties involved, 
how do the courts look on a business that has done, made misstep after misstep after misstep now caused an injury? Yeah. I mean, of course I have to say every case is different, but I mean, your guess is going to be correct. You know, you're not nobody, not the judge, not the jury. Nobody's going to have sympathy for an employer that's basically knowingly and purposefully evaded all the rules. I mean, almost nothing they say is going to be given any amount of credibility. So if my client is at all, you know, a credible, likable person, you know, that means bad news for the employer, good news for the plaintiff slash claimant's side. So I just couldn't recommend against that enough. Just, and I'm not trying to sell insurance products or anything like that. I just, in my heart of hearts, I've just seen how devastating it could be to the average business to have injuries happen like the clients that I represent and not have protection. You know, you may not ever have that serious permanent and total disability case or quadriplegia case, you know, or something like that. But guess what? You might, you might. And one of those cases alone can result in the employer and the insurance company being liable to pay the claimant weekly benefits for the rest of his or her life. Um, and that's on top of the medical care and that's on top of your defense costs. And um, I think I don't know a lot of businesses, you know, in rural communities or in a lot of businesses that could really afford to do that. So, you know, it would be sad for everybody involved for that to be the situation. You know, whenever we have those, I mean, I've been doing this now for 20 years, we have those claims. I mean, whether it's a slip and fall that causes serious injury or, uh, the contractor that cuts a finger off. I mean, those are injuries. Those are injuries that last, you know, somebody's lifetime. Um, I worked with a guy the other day, they had a migrant worker who was using a wood chipper and shirt got caught, sucked his arm in. Yeah. You know, that's an instant OSHA reportable, you know, luckily the, uh, the guy that I talked to said they have workers compensation. They did all the right things, but, uh, you know, those are, those are your worst days. And at your worst days, you need the most help you can possibly get. Still. I mean, you just think just your average arm injury, somebody loses their arm up to the level of the shoulder. I mean, that's probably a whole body injury, but let's just say it's just the arm. That's 250 weeks of pay. So if the person's only get, maybe their rate is $500 a week, that's $125,000 just right there. Um, and that's like bare minimum. So you know, and losing an arm injury is not that, that diff, that hard of an injury to imagine happening in Iowa. You know, we're an ag state, we're a, a manufacturing state. We, you know, those type of injuries are very common here. So, so one of the things that we do or that we advocate for, for businesses is to, uh, one communicate and two instant report a claim. Um, I'm a big fan of nurse triage. I'm not saying nurse triage is the end all be all, but I think it is a great first step in reporting a claim because either we find out if it's self-care, we find out if something's needed, we line up those people, the insurance company knows instantly. Um, then once they go to that preferred provider, which I'm also as an insurance agent who wants to advocate for keeping costs down for business owners, we advocate for the preferred provider as a way to not only control claims, but to also, we need that preferred provider to be an advocate for the business owner. And so a lot of times what we would recommend is ABC company, go meet with your medical provider, talk to them about what your culture is, what your return to work program is, what job duties you're willing to accommodate. Uh, 
And we say that because the last thing that we want at claim time is kind of what you mentioned, somebody who maybe is not getting the care they need. They're sitting at home. They're seeing your commercials. They call an attorney. It's been three days. And now this thing from our end gets a little bit more expensive. And I think there was a failure for really that business to maybe communicate to the doctor what it is that they're looking for. And so they just shove that person at home. So I don't know what your thoughts are on communicating a return to work program directly to the medical provider at all, or if you ever see that. Um, I see that more in the manufacture, the larger manufacturing context. Um, my personal feelings on that is I'm fine with nurse triage. So in the context of somebody falls down at work, they got a sore elbow, sore shoulder. I think that if you don't have in-house nurses, then you should have somebody from the insurance company, a nurse, nurse from the insurance company, call the claimant and take a statement to find out exactly the nature of the complaints so that you can help determine where to send them for care. After they have been sent for care, I personally feel like the employer needs to back out of it a little bit because um, the doctor's job is not to look out for the business. A doctor's job is to provide the best medical care he, he or she can for the patient. Now, to the extent that that means that the doctor should have a good understanding of the nature of the job that the person is doing so that they can refer them back to to a, a suitable work. I think that does probably require some degree of communication between the employer and the doctor, what, or maybe that's the employer and the doctor's nurse, um, something to that effect. But I'm not an advocate for the company having too much of a heavy hand in the medical care aspect. Cause I, and for me, the reason is because that's going to it, I just feel like it causes distrust of the employee because you got to understand from their perspective, they're not choosing this person. They didn't choose to get hurt. They're probably already um, being looked at in a suspicious way. And, you know, we're humans, we pick up on that stuff. So, you know, if, if an employer is sending people to a doctor who everybody knows is the company doctor, odds are pretty good. They're going to find their way to my office. Whereas if the goal is, hey, let's get this person to the most qualified person for this type of injury and get them back to work and support them and let them know they're a valued team member and that kind of attitude, I think that's a, a better end result. But I definitely can understand your perspective that cost control is an important factor. And it's unfortunate because it shouldn't, the number one concern should be get the claimant healthy and back to work as soon as possible no matter what it costs. What, what you're talking about is care, care for the other care for the person that was just hurt. Correct. And I think of the business you've seen businesses. We all know the businesses that has the company doc <laughs> who the company doctor is uh, denied, 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 and uh, doesn't maybe promote the right thing for that injured worker. And we yeah. also see businesses that say, Hey, listen, we actually truly care about this injured worker. We have this return to work program. They have the return to work program because they want to keep their insurance costs low and bring that employee back to work as quickly as possible. But there's a right way to do that. Yeah. I mean, doing that with care and I'm a huge advocate for some type of claim navigator at the company where they can be an advocate for that injured worker and management and the insurance company and basically another voice. Cause not everybody knows how to navigate a claim or wants to speak up. They're yeah. losing their job. They may be out of work already. I mean, they don't want to rock the boat any more than they already have. 
Yeah. It's scary. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, I don't, I think in my practice, you know, what we see in the cases is when I'm working on a file and we do what's called discovery, we get an exchange of information between the parties to a case. And I have to tell you in all of my time, I have not seen one company that has like a really good, uh, well put together, comprehensive strategic return to work program. They've got some papers that say return to work program on them, but you know, the training isn't there for it. The implementation isn't there for it. So I think it, a company would be very wise to actually implement a real program, not just say that they have one so that they can get a premium discount, but actually have one in paper and, and perhaps take your business's own money and go on Google in your state and hire a lawyer who actually does workers' compensation in that state and have that lawyer help you put together the return to work program. And that can include things such as workers' rights, um, you know, forms that you can work with, work um, to give to an employee who has light duty restrictions. Um, because like in Iowa, for example, when an employee has an injury and they return to work light duty, the law actually says now that the employer has to communicate the light duty offer of work to the employee in writing. And I don't know, since that law was passed in 2017, I've maybe seen like three written offers of light duty work to claimants. <laughs> so either employers are not being educated about their duties under the law or people just think things will work out anyway. So who cares? I don't know what's going on there, but people are not following the law. But I think that would be a huge um, investment that a small business could make in itself to be proactive um, in the management of future workers' compensation cases. Would I like to see some division of Zoop and Zoop? Pardon? I said, is that going to be a new division of Zoop and Zoop? Um, I feel like I already do that. It's just called claimant's lawyer. <laughs> no, I think uh, there's definitely, you know, a lot of ways that I think employers could improve the process for not only themselves, but for the claimants. And, you know, I would also advocate to employers don't be afraid to go online and find a workers' compensation seminar um, because we have some amazing workers' compensation seminars in Iowa. In fact, um, the Iowa Division of Workers' Compensation puts on a seminar every year. Um, it's called the Symposium. It's put on by the Advisory Committee. And I think it's the largest workers' compensation symposium that's held annually in the country. Um, and it's for nurse case managers. It's for in-house um work comp staff, it's for HR, it's for claimants, it's for defendants. Anybody who's really affiliated with the industry in Iowa goes to that seminar. So if you're not, if you're in the business of working with claims and managing claims and handling claims, you need to be at that seminar. And if not that one, then pick one of the other ones. It doesn't really matter. But if you're going to succeed in Iowa, um, you can't not be going to those seminars. Like I don't see how you can sit and adjust claims from Washington and have no real clue what Iowa law requires. I mean, you can do it, but if you run up against somebody like me at trial or one of my friends who does what I do, I mean, I almost feel bad for, for the insurance company or the employer that chooses not to be educated about the law. When you go to court against an insurance company, how often is that? I mean, let's say a, let's say an injured worker hires you 
how many of those claims maybe just get settled? Like, Hey, we'll just write a check. And it, it's easier for us to write a check than to drag this out and go to court. Or do you see carriers like fighting tooth and nail? And if so, are they bringing in the business owners to that then too? And I mean, everyone's sitting in the courtroom. Um, so every lawyer's practice is a little bit different. Um, in my practice, I would probably say we're able to resolve probably 90% of them before trial. Um, and for me, I think that's because I spend my time working up the case. And so I just give the defense lawyer everything he or she needs just to see what the exposure is. And then we settle it really close to that. Um, and that's just why, why would you go to trial if that's how it's going to end up? Um, but I, I do think that there's some other lawyers who maybe want to, you know, they just go to trial because they have not put in the work to get it to the point of settlement before trial. And it's kind of like, well, we don't really have time to settle it now. So just take it to trial. I think there's that crowd. Um, so for them, they obviously are going to be in trial more than I would. Now, how many times is the employer sitting right in there? I would probably say half of the time uh, the defense lawyer has to bring in the employer. And I would say those people are going to usually be like the supervisor. So, you know, you're losing some money there with your productivity out of your supervisor. A lot of the times the uh, management might be there. Um, so you're losing those resources as well. Um, and the reason for that for them being there, obviously, is that any time the company is being sued, they have the right to have at least one corporate representative sitting there with the lawyer. And I think it's a good idea anyway, even if if you are being sued and you know from your lawyer that you have a court date coming up and your lawyer hasn't said anything to you about whether or not you want to be there, absolutely, as the employer, you should have somebody sitting there at counsel table so that you can advise the lawyer as to what to do. So you know, if you're not staying involved in the process, how are you going to keep track on what your lawyer is doing? You know, you may end up with a defense lawyer who really doesn't take too much time to defend the case. And he's really there just to ask basic questions about things he already should know about from reading the medical records. So, you know, there's, a, there's a fair number of attorneys in Iowa who do work comp defense, who probably have way too many files than they should. And I think it does reflect in their work and people that do what I do, we know who those people are. We like that. Um, but I think that the employer can get control of that um, by being more active itself. Because when you have a claim, the insurance company isn't just there to take care of the claimant. You know, they do owe a duty to the employer as well um, to reduce the exposure on the claim. And, you know, if the adjuster isn't working up the file the right way or the lawyer's not working up the file the right way, well, guess what? That means I get a larger uh, win in court. And guess what? That means your premiums are going up. So even if it is just like you think, oh, it's just a hand injury. Well, are you sure about that? You know, it might be a hand injury that turned into chronic regional pain syndrome. And now all of a sudden I've got a whole body injury, or it might be a hand injury that turned into an overuse injury on the other side. And now I've got a bilateral simultaneous injury. You know, there's a lot of um, little moving pieces and parts in there that an employer really needs to stay engaged in. And I don't want to scare anybody. You know, it's a, it's an easy process if you know it, but if you don't know it and you're not getting involved, you know, you almost deserve what you get. So, so we talk about, um, we know the cost of a claim, medical and indemnity. We know what that's going to cost. We know what the doctor's going to cost. We can post up some claim reserves for that. 
if you've got an employer that's maybe taken a few missteps, maybe they don't have a return to work program, or in some cases I've seen where, where Billy was a great worker right up until the day he was injured and now he can't do anything right. And that employer just maybe needles him. And so Billy goes and hires you and now we've got courts, we've got discovery, we've got trial dates. Now we need to appear in court. By the way, we need to bring our managers. I mean, that's that, bad. <laughs> well, that makes that that's a, that's an indirect cost of the claim, right? I mean, that's, that's where you don't want to be absolutely ideally, but there's a cost associated with that. And I, what do you think the average, maybe business who's taken some missteps is going to spend in time or resources to deal with a claim that is now maybe being litigated where if it's not litigated, they wouldn't have to do all that. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm the one litig- litigating against the business, your lawyer is probably going to get a couple emails a week from me, if not more. Um, so I don't know how much he's charging for each of those. I'm, I mean, I know that's picked up initially by the insurance company, but it, it gets passed down through the employer eventually. Um, but I think most of the time, um, anything I'm bothering the lawyer with, he's probably bothering the employer with. So a couple a week. Um, but, you know, so if you have bad practices where all your employees are mad and upset and treated like crud from the day after they're injured, um, if you have, you know, 10 employees who are all with claimants counsel that are like me, plan on fielding 20, 30, 40 emails a week. Whereas if you just treat people nicely and they don't come to me and they're happy and they get back to work, you know, you might maybe have five or 10 a week. So I can really make somebody's life miserable and I will basically do everything I can until my client gets a fair result. And then once we get a fair result, we're fine. We're not asking, we never ask for more than fair. You know, you can't win more than fair, but we can always win fair. And so, you know, I try to work on cases for people um, just enough so that, you know, we get a result that is based upon the evidence. It is based upon the law. And if you don't want to give it to me in settlement, that's fine. I'm pretty comfortable getting that in court. And I think most people most people that do workers' compensation, you know, as a specialty like I do, they feel the same way. Like court's not going to bother us. And I don't think it bothers the defense lawyer either because they're going to get paid by the hour. Mm-hmm. What really bothers is the employer because they've lost their chance to reduce their exposure. You know, things may come out in trial that they didn't want to come out. You know, so if an employer can get a good offer from the claimant's lawyer before trial, you know, nine times out of 10, you should probably take it. Even if it sounds like a lot from our perspective, it's probably not enough. So if you're not happy with it as an employer, we're probably not happy with it either. And usually that's the sign of a good result. Nobody's happy. (laughs) I mean, I think there's very few lawyers, at least in Iowa, who will work on a case and not at some point give you a demand prior to trial. I just... If, if there's a claimant's lawyer that's not working up a case and offering to settle it on, on terms that are agreeable to the client ahead of time, you know, they're just, they're not, they're not doing their job because nobody should be exposing their client to a risk of loss at trial. If before trial, you can get something that's fair. Yeah. The problem, the problem In my experience, is, they never want to go to trial. If, if it can be settled amicably before trial, that seems to be what happens. Yep. 
you have any examples? Maybe. Well, like, uh, do you have any examples that maybe large claims or claims that were litigated and just, I mean, the whole process went off the rails, maybe, maybe because of something that the employer or the insurance company, or I don't know. Mm. Oh, let's see. That's tough for me, Todd. Cause I feel like, uh, you know, I've only lost once, um, in all my years. And I don't think that that case was even my fault because we could have got that settled ahead of time, but my client wanted to go to trial and that's fine. That's his right. I thought we would lose and I was right. Um, so for me, um, I can't really think of any, I mean, I think that uh, there should have been cases that settled a lot sooner than they did. I have that a lot. Um, I have cases where the company didn't settle it and, you know, they probably should have because then we went to trial and, you know, got the full amount, you know, because if sometimes when like, for example, say I have a bilateral knee replacement case, well, we don't really know exactly how the need for that bilateral knee replacement arose. That's an issue in the case to be decided. So, you know, if you have a, a case where it's zero in a word of zero, all the way up to bilateral knee replacements, seems to me somebody ought to try to settle that case for a fair amount, maybe even a little higher than middle because it's a big risk. So if you're going to not settle that case with me, you know, odds are pretty good. I'm going to go to trial and win it because I'm not going to go to trial in a case I'm going to lose. I mean, aside from that one time, I mean, I'm not stupid. I'm going to get those cases settled. If, if I'm going to go to trial, it's because I really think I have a good shot at winning. Nobody wants to have a losing record. No, I, I actually care about winning cases for people, not taking cases to trial that are losers just because the client wants to say they went to trial. Like I'm just not a believer in that. Got it. What other tips do you have for business owners? I know you made a, you made a list. I think when we talked last time, right? Yeah, I think we've, co- I think we've covered a lot of them. Um, let me see here. You know, uh, one thing that I see a lot is paying benefits late. I would say that's this, and I know this is maybe not as much for employers as it is for the insurance companies, but in probably almost every case I do, I see benefits being paid late. And the problem with that in Iowa is that the law says that if there's a delay or denial of benefits without a reasonable excuse in writing at the time of the delay or denial, I can apply for a penalty benefit and be awarded up to 50% of the amount that was unreasonably delayed or denied. Well, it's not really hard for a lawyer to get the indemnity history, see when everything was paid, put it on an Excel sheet and see how many times and how many payments are, are late. So you know, from the perspective of an insurance company and employer, it shouldn't really be that hard to pay a check on time. The law says the check is due on the day after the period that it's covered. So if the, if the check covers from 1220 to 1227, get the check out on or before 1228. And I think the best uh, carriers and the best employers, their practice is to send it a few days ahead of time. And that'll, that'll eliminate the risk of, oh, it was a holiday or, oh, so-and-so was sick or whatever happened. Um, so that's for me as a lawyer, that's a really easy way I can rack up points for me to use in negotiating. So if I have, maybe I'm going to lose on causation or maybe that's for example, maybe we have a rate dispute, you know, maybe the rate dispute is a 3% versus a 10%. Well, if I've got, you know, eight weeks of penalty that are late worth three or $4,000, guess what? I'm more likely to get my 10% impairment rating. Thank you very much. Cause that's just how we negotiate. 
Um, another thing I would say that I see very often, and this is something that I think most employers can probably check for themselves if they want to avoid the penalty exposure. And I shouldn't just say penalty is bad faith too, although we don't see that as much. And there's reasons for that, but I won't get into it. Um, so the law in Iowa says that an employee's average weekly wage for their workers' compensation is based upon, for most people, your average hourly worker, the 13 weeks prior to the date of the injury, as long as those weeks are customary weeks. And I couldn't tell you the number of times, I bet probably nine, that's maybe high, eight out of 10 times in my practice, I'll see the rate being miscalculated by an insurance company. I was like, excuse me? This isn't hard stuff. This is baby stuff. If you can't even calculate the average weekly wage and the rate correctly, there's going to be problems in the case. And so I think what an employer should do is just grab the law. It's in uh, 85, uh, 85, 6, and that will tell you um, how to pay an employee. And so what we see happening is the employer's um, insurance company will just take the last 13 weeks of wages and, oh, that's an average. There you go. There's your average weekly wage. But then they'll include like three weeks in there where the employee missed two days a week or was gone on a vacation day or whatever the case is. But the law is very clear that if a week um, is not customary because the employee wasn't working that week, then you throw that week out and you replace it with the next week. And uh, I don't think those are hard concepts. I think for as often as I see that, I feel like that is a conspiracy on the part of the insurance company to try to pay the injured worker the least amount of money that they possibly can and try to get away with it. And you can maybe get away with it, maybe even get away with it five times out of 10, but you're not going to get away with it the second that the employee goes to a experienced workers' compensation attorney. So, you know, why would you want to underpay risk penalty? You're going to owe interest, you're risking bad faith, and you're going to owe it anyway. Just do your best to calculate that the right way. So there's a couple of lessons in here. I think that, uh, that you just, that you, that you just taught us here. So one, the, I don't know that most businesses know how quickly they should report a worker's compensation claim. And when we talk about instant reporting, it's simply so the insurance company can get that first indemnity check off. And the insurance company is behind the gun when an employer waits seven days to turn in that claim. Meanwhile, it's already been ER, MRI, surgery, and seven days in the insurance company's finding out about it. And then it's this mad rush to catch up. Not only is it a mad rush to catch up, it's also, I think that's when it becomes a problem for, for the injured worker who hasn't heard from anybody for seven days. And had the insurance company known about that, at least somebody would have reached out and said, Hey, what's going on? What do you need? We're here for you. You know, whatever that process is. The number two, when you talk about calculating weekly wages, I can, I'm, I'm picturing small businesses, not large firms with HR departments that know the ins and outs of the Iowa workers compensation law. I'm thinking of these small firms that when somebody says, or the insurance company, and it's probably not even the adjuster, it's maybe, you know, some new person that's working there, right? Or somebody a couple of notches down the totem pole says, hey, I need this 13-week payroll report. They just go into their bookkeeping system. They run the last 13 weeks. And in reality, if that injured worker who makes X a week has been off, week, you know, off work for birthdays, doctor's visits, whatever it is, you're saying to throw that week out and really run the calculation for the full five or six day work week, the last 13 weeks? Yes, correct. 
Um, typically, what we do in our business is we ask for the last six months prior to the date of the injury. In fact, the law requires that if the employee requests, the employer has to produce the last 52 weeks of wages. I mean, provided that the employee was actually there, it's actually criminal not to do so. Although there's never been a prosecution for that in Iowa, but it happens all the time. Um, I think a savvy employer will go and just check each of those 13 weeks to see if they are customary. And the employer should have a good idea of whether or not that's a regular number of weeks worked by that employee. And if not, be asking your adjuster, hey, shouldn't we, I mean, that seems like it's low. Shouldn't we be, you know, checking on that? And the reason you want to do that is because workers don't understand that when they do get a check, like let's just say that the employer reported on time, they are paying indemnity because the person's out. And all of a sudden this worker who was getting, they think like $700 a week, all of a sudden a check for 500 shows up in their door and they're like, Hmm. You know, geez, wow, that's really low. They don't understand that that's based upon the fact that they're not paying taxes on it and things like that. And it's designed to be a little bit lower so that you're not incentivized to stay out of work. Um, but the worker's already going to naturally be suspicious of that number. So, um, you know, they're already going to be feeling naturally inclined to come to somebody like me. So I think if you are presuming that they will be coming to somebody like me, you should probably do your best to do things on your end the correct way so that when they come to me, I'm not the one that points it out to my clients. Oh yeah, look here, they were trying to rip you off. Look, I just helped you. You know, the good way to get my client to fall in love with me is by me finding them an extra hundred dollars a week. And that's, I mean, I, lots of times I have found rate disparities of over a hundred dollars a week. And that's disgusting. That should not be happening. You know, when we have sophisticated claims professionals. That's crazy. I didn't even know that was a thing until today. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I know we're about almost out of time Mm -hmm. here and this hour has flown by. Do you have any, uh, uh, anything else that you want to bring up? Or if not, I got a few questions for you before we wrap up today. I don't have anything in particular, Todd. You know, I would just like to say that all claimants lawyers are not evil. Um, we do have hard jobs. You know, we are dealing day in and day out with the emotional trauma of our client and somebody that has never been through this experience before. And they've got other people chirping in their ear about how they got a million dollars. And, you know, we don't get to pick the doctors. You know, we do really have an uphill battle on this side. But if you as an insurance agent or adjuster or the employer are dealing with claimants counsel and we ask you for something, you know, odds are we're not doing it just to hear ourselves speak or waste time. You know, almost everything I do is strategic because I'm not going to be spending a whole bunch of my time and my money on things that I don't need that aren't going to help my client. So if I say something, you should probably do it. You don't have to, but I'm just telling you, I know my client and I know how to get to yes. So if you don't want to take my word for it, you know, we're probably going to end up in court. So, but I would say, you know, I want to help the employer resolve the case just as much as the employee. You know, my goal is help the employee as much as I can, but I, I understand that that also means being flexible and workable with the employer's goals too. You know, I can see when the employer has a worker that they don't want back. I get that. Well, if you want a closed file and you want my client to no longer be working there, we need to be negotiating on fair terms. Otherwise, guess what? You're going to be stuck with my client there. But yeah, I'd be happy to answer any other questions you have. The questions that I have are not necessarily workers' compensation related, but uh, I think there was some great information from you today. And I mean, the reality is if, 
if there's a proper risk management program in place, a proper claim system in place, a proper return to work program in place, and the insurance company is on board with the business and the injured worker, there's nothing that you're going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, if, if, if everything's going the right way and you go in and the weekly calculations is the right way, the doctor's tests have been run the right way. I'm sure that you've had people, you said, Hey, it looks like for the most part, things are going okay. However rare you mentioned that yep. at the beginning, but things look like they're going okay. I'm not sure you really have anything here. Yep. Oh, absolutely. I probably have, you know, maybe one person a month who comes in and consults with me about their case, who I just let them know. I mean, it looks like they're doing everything they're supposed to do here. And so you don't need a lawyer now because I'm not going to jump on a case and spend my time, you know, for nothing for somebody that doesn't need it and potentially create hostile relations between the worker and, and the employer. Um, so now do other lawyers turn those clients away? I don't know. I mean, I'm just not the type to take on a case for somebody that I can't actually help. But yeah, I think if an employer has, you know, educated work comp people in place, or maybe not in place, but just a local resource that they can tap, even if it's not a local lawyer, you know, make friends with one of the lawyers in Des Moines that does this for a living, somebody that you can just, you know, get on quick dial and send them an email. Hey, we have this worker that hurt his hand, you know, he wants to work light duty with just, you know, the left hand, is that okay? The doctor didn't say anything, but is that okay? You know, let that lawyer advise you. Um, and I think you can steer yourself out of a lot of problems that you didn't even know could exist by good good um, practices from the very beginning. And I think that should include forms and it should include policies. And, and if you're gonna have a return to work policy, make sure to follow it because that's good for us too. If you don't, Surround yourself with smart people and don't be the smartest person in the room, right? Always be learning. Absolutely. You know, the one thing about work comp in Iowa is every case is different. There's always some new arguments to be made, and that couldn't be more true um, than now since we've had the new legislative changes in Iowa since 2017. Uh, most of the big issues haven't even been fully decided. So there's a lot of issues in Iowa right now that uh, really can get people into trouble if they don't know what they're doing. And so definitely need insurance. You definitely need to have people that you can call that have experience in the business. Um, you know, and if, if things get really bad, you know, stay active, stay engaged, you know, don't be thinking that the worker is just out there to get you. They're not, I've never met a client yet that wanted to be injured. You know, I can't think of anybody in their right mind who would give up a good paying job to go ahead and be treated like gum on the bottom of somebody's shoe and go through three years of litigation for 13 grand or something, yeah, you know, it doesn't that's the, that's the story that gets told is that workers are just out to get something, but I guarantee you workers' compensation is not the golden ticket to paradise for most people. Um, it's a, a means to an end and it does work well if the processes are followed. It, re- it doesn't work bad or it doesn't work good if they're not. And for those of us, or for those who might be listening outside of the state of Iowa, the, the Iowa went through some massive workers' compensation reform in 2017 and really changed, really changed the way things were handled and how, how uh, the onerous for the burden of proving a claim and some drug testing and so those may not exist in your area, but uh, like you said before, we're still waiting to see how some of those shake out because they haven't been tested in court yet. Yeah. So great information today. 
Jennifer, before we wrap up, I got three random questions here for you. These are three questions we're asking on every podcast. What are you reading right now? Mm, nothing. I have two children and a husband. So nothing. I'm reading medical records for fun. Medical. <laughs> that doesn't sound like fun reading at all. That's fun. You learn so much. You know, I always want to be a doctor or a lawyer growing up. So I get to do both by being a work. There you go. Lawyer. And you get to help people too. Mm-hmm. What's the one, th- what's one thing that you spend more money on than you should? Hmm. My daughter's shopping habits. She likes to shop online and I let her. Do you shop with her? Uh, I, I do for myself a little bit, but I, te- I tend to live vicariously through my daughter's shopping. Uh, as a father of three daughters, I, I, I feel your pain. I've seen their wardrobe. I can understand Todd. <laughs> <laughs> and last thing, uh, what's uh, as we wrap up here today, what's one piece of advice that you'd you'd like to tell people or give the world? Be nice to each other. You know, we have so much going on in this world today that you know people like to say it affects us all. And the reality is probably what affects us most is our families, our communities, those around us. So just treat each other with respect and, and you know, remember what goes around comes around. Great advice. Great advice. Jennifer, if people want to reach out or get a hold of you, how, how are they going to find you? Well, we have a website, www.zoopandzoop.com. Uh, or they can search me out on Google. Um, we have a Google business page as well. I have a personal Facebook page. Or you can call Todd. Todd knows how to get a hold of me. <laughs> I think we'll have some of your information on our on our podcast website too. So uh, once again, some great information today. Uh, I appreciate you coming on our podcast and sharing some of your experiences. I hope the businesses and the HR professionals and the risk managers who listen to this find at least one nugget or two out of here that maybe they can implement in their business to maybe not have those problem claims where they bump into you. Uh, not that, not that you're not a nice person, but uh, if we can keep things non-litigated and people cared for the right way, I think that's a better strategy long-term. So, Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank Todd. you so much, Jennifer. 